Welcome to the Seek Outside Podcast. Podcast. Yeah, there's there's no question. David Lean. And you were the uh, head chapter leader of Colorado VHA? Clay Hayes. Uh, well, I got stalked by a mountain lion, uh, made a fishing pole out of a lodgepole pine. Falconry and bird dogs, can they coexist? Oh man, and do they. Shitty weather and lots of bears. That's what this podcast is about. You made a point when you get up in those high basins and the thunderstorms come rolling in. That's how I got into trail running. Some people are just wired that way. I would say that your comment about us being bright is a little bit of an overstatement. <laughs> <laughs> audibly, audibly speaking, well, you were you sounded bright. We we probably started this weekend a little smarter than than we are now because there's been a lot of brain cell yes, damage sir. based to these twelve ounce curls. Yes, sir. So. Yes, sir. Yeah. Anyway. Hopefully you switch hands. I don't want you to get lopsided. Uh, no, I know. I'm, I'm moving to the right hand now. <laughs> um, you know, the left one. I'm, I'm getting Popeye arm there. So, yeah. um, so anyway, um, our guest today is Chris Chris Parrish. Um, me and him were having a little bit of conversation at our um, dinner the other night. Mm-hmm. Thought it'd be pretty interesting. Um, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about what you do, Chris? Sure. So um, I'm here actually representing both myself as a, a hunter and angler and lover of conservation and public lands, uh, but we also have a booth. Um, we're not exactly a vendor, but uh, we're here sharing information with our fellow hunters and anglers. And with the uh, outfit that we established, co-founded, called the North American Non-Lead Partnership. Okay. And that was established because... You know, in, in in science, we're taught to publish papers. Right. That's like the the, the indicator of whether or not you're successful, you know, and, and whether or not you're productive. Right. And so <clears throat> the problem with that is that's just science. And that's great because we're able to ask questions and hopefully find some answers. But then what do you do with it? Unless you do something with it, it's not science. I mean, it's not Unless you do something with it, it's not conservation. It's not actionable yeah, until you exactly. start doing something Exactly. With it. So knowledge is great, but what you do with knowledge is what's important. And what we fear is that because it's somewhat of a contentious issue, that if they're not getting the information from their fellow hunters and anglers, then it can be skewed and they have, an, you know, people have agendas. Groups have agendas. Right. And sometimes they use science as a battle axe towards legislature and threaten litigation. And I, we don't, we don't think that's the way to go we think it's sharing information with one another internalizing it and then going forward yeah if you try to tell a bunch of hunters um from say the sierra club that it comes out it's probably not gonna go over quite as well oh yeah absolutely there's message message there's messenger and then there's content and then there's timing you know i mean and so with re- with reference to California, where they recently banned, and I say they, they were forced to. It, it didn't come from the ground up; it came from the top down. And so um, that's a I don't know. That's a bad way to start a conversation. And uh, we'd like to have the conversation be for those of us in conservation that are actually doing science. And you know, I was a hunter and ang- angler before I became a biologist. 
and I'm still hunting and fishing. We want to share this information so people can can internalize it, think about it, and then make act take action. And we're confident that with our long history of conservation and our heritage and hunting and angling, we've always done good things for wildlife. Really? <laughs> Throw something in the air without hitting a biologist. Well, maybe maybe we just found a way. You know, you're not going to get rich, but you do some pretty awesome things, and they very much coincide with um, hunting and fishing and, and love of the outdoors and making sure that we get to enjoy it, but most importantly, we pass that on. Right. Now, your badge says Peregrine Fund. So I work for the Peregrine Fund. We're a raptor conservation organization. We work with birds of prey worldwide. And I came to the Peregrine Fund from Arizona Game and Fish Department. So I was working there. And then uh, they approached me to come help them with the California Condor Program. And so through the Condor Program, in studying all of the individuals of an entire population of a species, we're able to learn things about them at an individual level, which makes it very unique, you know, if, if <laughs> they're having fun. <laughs> yeah. Park. Yeah. There so, you go. Um, so go take care of them, Ryan. I mean, <laughs> just boot them out, man. So the, um, so the information we've gleaned through. It's all, it's all right, man. Just let them have a good time. So the information we've gleaned from that work with condors and, you know, learning about what they feed on, where they're feeding on it, and then all of a sudden we started to see lead poisoning pop up. And lead, lead poisoning accounts for 54% of our diagnosed deaths. So that's a little more than just happenstance, and that caused us to look into where is it coming from. So we looked in soils, we looked in water, all these places that it could be coming from. And, of course, most people are pretty educated, especially here. I mean, people yeah. know that, oh, well, you know, some of it comes from fragmentation of center fire and rim fire rifle bullets. Some of it comes from the potential exposure from lead pellets, things like that. So this crowd here, I, that's why I love it so much. They're very well educated, willing to listen. And, you know, we've had this happen at, at the rendezvous. Uh, we've been to four now. And uh, it's not uncommon for somebody to say, I had no idea. But it makes sense. What can I do to help? Musician, a bluesman that I, I really dig his music. And one of his songs is called My People. Yep. And uh, this is like my people here. You bet you, man. You so. bet you. And you know, and 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 there therein lies another challenge. I told the guys that were coming up to help help with the booth. You know, there are a bunch of us doing little little projects all around the western states, mostly, but it's expanding. And and by forming a partnership, we can come together and share. Hey, what's working in messaging? Right. You know, and it's funny that that I say that, and I'm talking about science, but but we have to in essence, market or share our science like it's a product or it just takes that individual who's looking for it to, to be receptive, you know? My hand up. Me too. And, and, um, <laughs> and you know, I got blood on my hands, stuff like that, um, that I was conflicted. And I told you a story about one year I, was, I had moved to copper just based on everything I'd heard try and do the right thing, shot an elk using a 30-yacht TTSX 168, I believe. Elk tipped over. It was great. Nice wound cavity. No no questions asked, right? Um, a few days later, shot a mule deer. 
It was probably about a half inch, maybe an inch low. Um, I spent 30 hours tracking that mule deer. I passed on several what looked like twins because I could tell in the snow that he had a injury and was favoring his right front leg. And I would watch these deer and be like, well, that one's, I don't see an injury. Don't see an injury. I found five beds. And after the fifth bed, it looked relatively clean. I didn't see any blood after that. Um, then probably about 100 yards downhill, I started to see blood pop up again. And then I saw a deer stand up and I looked through my scope and I could see that it was favoring its right front leg. I shot it offhand, tumbled down into a ravine, so I harvested the deer. That was all good, but that made me rethink the copper choice. Because I thought, you know, if I'd have been using like just a standard old core lock, that probably wouldn't have happened. It really appeared like my the bulk of my expansion was after the bulk of the vitals, you know, and later into it. And... So, lately I've been using um, Hornady ELDX. I've had good luck. Things seem to tip over relatively quickly. Um, however, this year I shot a pretty nice bull, and it took like three shots, you know. Um, two more shots than I wanted, because I hit it in the shoulder. I actually hit it almost right in the knuckle, which is about the worst place to hit it in the front there you know um should have hit it just a little higher um and as i was working on the on the elk in the field there was this cute little camp robber that came up and was just very insistent and i was like this camp robber is going to be on this elk in no time and there was a lot of bloodshot meat due to the three shots in the front and the fragmentation from hitting that bone there and I kind of thought to myself man Kevin you asshole you know this bird's going to be dead here in a little bit because of your ammunition joint well I, I like to I like to really um, really clearly state what the dangers are and it's not that if you shoot lead you're going to kill wildlife because it's not 100 percent it's a probability so you know um there's a probability that that bird could ingest lead and it could get to a high enough level that it could be poisoned that's a possibility does it happen every time we don't know that because we're not monitoring that we don't have science for that but um yeah, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say you're guilty. You're you're making conscious decisions, and if people make conscious decisions based on the information out there and their own experiences, hopefully, th that that makes a better situation. You know, in some places, in some states where you can drive to a carcass, sometimes we tell people, hey, if you're dead set on using lead and you can haul your gut pile out, which sounds ludicrous, <laughs> yeah. especially where you guys hunt up here in the north, but down in Arizona, it is possible. Anyway, those are options. And I think in, in sharing what those options are, that shows how reasonable it is. It's, it's simply there's a probability and a potential for exposure, and you can do things to decrease that, like making sure your shot placement is spot on. Making sure that, you know, some people hunt bears. A good buddy of mine, he hunts bear, and he said, <clears throat> I hit him in the shoulder. I break him down. 
in that case, you're going to want a more dense bullet that doesn't fragment as much so that it penetrates through that humerus. And I've experienced that at 419 yards on a cow elk. I was pretty confident. I had shot the, these uh, non-lead bullets. And uh, I took the shot at 419, you know, and it seemed like forever for the bullet to get there. <laughs> and then I saw the hit. And when she squatted and responded to the hit and she ran, I saw the near side shoulder flopping. And I was like, there you go, idiot. That's why you don't hunt beyond your, your capabilities, right? I thought maybe I hit it low and just busted her off in the, in the lower part of the leg. Well, she crashed and piled up 40 yards later. It actually went through the humerus into the heart and exited the other side. I considered too, not thinking about anything other than all these different possibilities. Would I have, would I have had the same experience if I shot a bullet that only retained 60% of its mass? I was really glad to have that solid copper at that time. So, but the bottom line is they're different tools. And when you have different tools, you have to use them in different ways. And this is, is very similar to if you grew up shooting core locks yeah. and then you decided to go shoot the interlock Hornady or the SST or something like that, you know, and hunters that, that I think do their due diligence to go side in and practice, you know it's not going to be papering in the same spot. So you have to adjust. You have to side in. You have to know that if you choose to use a non-lead bullet, not all of them, the technologies are changing, seems like daily, but you can't hunt out to the same ranges that you can with some lead bullets because the copper bullet needs about 18, 1900 feet per second in order to mushroom perfectly. As far as the distance of when it opens up in our testing and what we've heard from manufacturers, that begins in the first quarter to an inch, quarter of an inch to an inch. When we shoot ballistics gel, in the absence of hair and hide and things like that, it's really consistent. And you can see it in the wound channel in the ballistics gel. So I guess uh, you can play the what ifs uh, all, all we want. And of course, after every action we take in the wild, we, we think about what if I'd have done this? What if I'd have done that? But what if, what if that shot was double lung shot? For my experiences, I'd have no doubt that that animal would have died. But, hey, yeah. Chris, could you break down for us the process that happens when you are shooting lead yeah. and how that may lead to, you know, hurting an animal, killing an animal, like the lead poisoning process? Could you break that down for yeah, us? Yeah, you, you bet. So, so any time you use, use a lead-based ammunition to take an animal, the there's a potential for, let's say it's, it's lead shot. So let's go with bird hunting. Cause we don't talk much about that, but, but here's, here's a, a scenario. You shoot a, a sharp tail and you wound it and it's got a couple of number sixes in it and it flies off, but it might be flying with that, you know, little, little gimp in the wing, like the limp in your deer, which one's a predator going to select, especially a young of the year predator or something right, like right, that. It's right. going to select that one. So it eats that. And now there's a probability, a possibility that they could eat that pellet. Well, one pellet to a bird like that is a pretty heavy dose of lead and it can make them sick and it can, and they can die. We don't, you know, people say, well, how much is too much? Well, we don't know because we're not out there poisoning, you know, wildlife and doing testing. There have been tests done and they've dosed eagles, they've dosed kestrels, um, they've dosed turkey vultures to see how much they can take before they die, even morning doves. Um, but I'm jumping all around here. So scavenger or a predator can consume that animal. 
that has lead in it. And that lead can be in the form of, let's say it's an intact pistol bullet. We've seen that in the gut of some of these birds we've studied where they ate an intact bullet. Well, I saw it and I was like, well, that looks like a 38. I wonder if it ate an animal that had been dispatched by a commissioned officer, law enforcement officer, you know, or a rancher with 38, maybe a rancher, you know, probably not a, a law enforcement officer. <laughs> They're going to be using nines and forties, but that's one potential pathway. Um, we've seen fragmentation and we've done extensive studies on quantifying rates of fragmentation in all types of different bullets, both in deer, in live animals, as well as shooting into ballistics gel and things like that. Um, so there's a possibility. Um, and then you can have, uh, lead pellets. And we've seen that in birds that we study where they're in, they've ingested some meat that has lead pellets in it. And I reloaded as a kid. So when I saw the, I saw the x-ray and I'm like, oh, those are sixes and sevens. You know, so those are some of the pathways, potential pathways. Um, and then how much it takes to kill them, it depends on each bird species. Some bird species like uh, scavenger, uh, op, um, obligate scavengers, those that depend on scavenging for their entirety of their food, um, those birds have a really acidic gut. And raptors have a really acidic gut. That's to break down. For a scavenger, it's to deal with things like breaking down bone, hide, dealing with things like botulism. You know, that's how they're able to do that. And for raptors, it's for, there's nutritional value in bone. So if they swallow those small bones, we see a pellet when it's cast by, by a hoot owl, or hoot owl. See, I'm just <laughs> not being the biologist here. Yeah. Um, but that's how I was raised. So, um you know, you can have, you, you think because you see a pellet and all the bones, you're like, oh, they must, maybe they can't digest bones. Well, a lot of raptors do digest bones and they use that calcium. Females use it for making eggs. Uh, every, all the other birds use it for replacement of bone cells, you know, so there's a lot of nutrition there. So that's a possibility that if you have lead in there and they're uptaking calcium, the body of most vertebrate species takes the lead and stores it as if it were calcium so it's mistaken and stored and calcium is used in the things i just mentioned as well as it's a neurotransmitter and if you disrupt that pathway for that neural transmission you've dumbed it down and you have paralysis well everybody's probably seen the stuff on the internet we ha have uh, you know uh, rehab facilities that show videos of these eagles that have been lead poisoned it's a horrible thing to watch because they lose their motor skills. They, you know, they, they're twitching, they can't stand up, they have clenched talons, things like that. And in, in vulture species, it can paralyze their, paralyze their digestive system. So because they have a crop, they'll continue to eat, but the sphincter that controls the, the uh, food moving from the crop into the proventriculus and the ventriculus, it doesn't work anymore. So they pack that crop full and they usually die of a secondary infection. So these are some of the details, and I know I'm getting into the weeds. Fish could break off a line yeah. with a lead sinker, yeah. swallow the lead sinker. Yeah. Eagle could eat the fish as the eagle that stole my king salmon in Alaska did one time. <laughs> um, yeah. Heck yeah. Yeah, he wasn't a friend of mine. Stole the yeah. stringer. Just took, <laughs> took off. Right. I was like, I was like... What the? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, and they could get lead poisoning. That, sure. That would be a yeah. valid way for it. it as it's well. a possibility. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so now you mentioned you've mentioned all these ballistic tests yeah. where it looks practically identical, 
as long as you have what 1890 1800 yeah um, feet per second yeah. right um is there any other drawbacks because i mean like technically you can shoot a say on a 6.5 creedmoor yeah i got some bullets at home that are 129 yeah. copper i know they're going to retain nearly 100 percent. yeah nearly 100 yeah. percent. right yeah. um where the 143 yield the x it's gonna 60 percent at best you know um is there should you maybe choose to shoot shoulder if you're shooting copper versus heart lung if you're shooting lead you know i i don't because i'm 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 terribly confident in the ammunition because i've used it for so long and i've hunted a lot of feral hogs which are you know tough critters to kill and i i shoot either double lung or behind the ear i wouldn't i wouldn't uh, recommend people do that with deer because there's too much margin for error but um, with with feral hogs I, I like a nice clean carcass and I do that but the, we recommend that for first-time hunters if you have um, apprehension that this new hunter or an existing hunter if any situation arises where you might not be able to get that perfect double lung shot breaking an animal down that way is a good idea and having a bullet with the most dense you know uh, projectile um, higher weight retention is your best bet. Community, yeah. and they're shoulder shooters, yeah. you know, um, you know, and they're they're people that a lot of people look up to. Right? Yeah, sure, so, sure. Um, okay. Yeah, I think it's a personal preference, man. I like as little bloodshot as possible. You know, bruised meat that I have to throw away. Um, no, no, for sure. Yeah, in the upper. I was thinking. Yeah, at the, yeah, but at the at junction. The, but at the heart lung, you yeah have like, you know, you're not going to. Well, the heart can be good eating. Yeah, absolutely. Double so. lung is is where I'm at. But but again, I think it's important that whenever you're going to talk about this issue, you have to talk about which which variable you're talking about. Are you talking about ballistics, terminal performance? Are you talking about potential threats to wildlife? It's so hard to talk about all of them together, but you have to process everything to end up making your decision, which is the complete package. But, you know, I've had people tell me, well, I like lead because it's what I've always used and, uh, you know, I'm going to continue using it. I was like, that, that's fine. Um, who hunts in the West, but he also hunts uh, whitetails um, in Tennessee. He will, if he hunts whitetails in Tennessee, it really is that it goes in a pickup truck and goes home and yeah. they do everything at home. As long as he doesn't, as long as he doesn't leave the gutting in the field. I'm glad you said that. Absolutely. It's, it's so important that we make sure that people understand our message. We're saying for the few numbers of rounds, fewer for some than others, based on how often we get drawn. <laughs> if you're going to shoot something whose remains can become part of the food chain, that's all the bullets we're talking about. We're not talking about switching for shooting targets and stuff like that. And yeah, it, it's um, it, it's not. We're not looking for getting rid of lead. We're looking for hunters to know that there's a potential that they might poison wildlife, non-target species. And it's our confidence that, given our conservation ethics, that we we don't intend to harm animals. I mean, there's harm with the one we're taking, of course, but right. we, we accept that responsibility. But we own that responsibility. And right. as my co-founder, Leland Brown, always says, we own that bullet in the entire process. From the time it leaves our barrel 
hits that animal, effectively putting it down. But now we have a new dimension. What about after the fact? Right. What about if there are lead fragments in a gut pile? Those are our fragments. We, we put those there. Right. And so it, the onus is on us to make a decision on, on how we intend to, to deal with that. And there's some vulnerabilities there. And there's some awfully sharp people in the non-hunting and worse yet anti-hunting community that they, they use this. And they say hunters don't care. They're out there intentionally poisoning non-target species. Well, I'm sorry. I don't believe that. And, and for all the thousands and tens of thousands of hunters we've talked to in the last two years since we launched this partnership and before, I know hunters care. But I also know they don't like being told what to do without having supportive information. And so we're trying to fill that gap. Oh, yeah. You yeah. know, you so I'm not going to say there's not any bad apples. There's 17 million hunters or whatever in North America, and every one of them is above board, exemplary morals. And hey, mine have improved. I was, I'm, I'm a redneck. You know, I'm, yeah. <laughs> yeah, mine have improved. I, I tell people the story all the time. I was applying for a law enforcement job in wildlife, and yeah, you have to do a polygraph. and. My polygraph took a long time because when I was a kid, I didn't know any better. I was ignorant. Yeah. And I learned an awful lot. And so when you're asked the question of, ever, have you ever been in violation of a wildlife law, uh, where do you want to start and how much time do you have? Yeah, right? Yeah, it's just like, man, we were all kids, you know? I, yeah. They should ask the question with the, with the uh, you know, with a lead-in saying, have you done this before 25 right. or after 25? Right. <laughs> right. Or, or then, yeah, exactly. Or then it, at least, well, and in my defense, you know, finally the lady that was, that was uh, putting on the, the polygraph, she finally said, she's a sweet lady. She said, honey, have you ever done anything bad? I said, well, that's not what you asked me. I went through everything and they weren't terrible, you know, but, you know, we used to, yeah, man, we, we shot everything with our pellet guns. It wasn't all legal. You know, you're not supposed to shoot bullfrogs, but once I found out they're invasive, I was like, great, and I like to eat their legs, so. <laughs> In the dictionary, should say something like, prone to stupid behavior. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Well, and that's like, you know, people talk about failures and all that. To me, a failure is if you repeat the same process of activities that leads to an undesirable result and you are disappointed and you do it again that's failure (laughs) damn right damn right yeah this is a learning opportunity you know it's hard to regret them because they become part of who you are you know what i mean it becomes like that brick that builds up you as an individual well this mistake caused me to change into this and it helps build your your house of Chris or your house of Ryan. Yeah. You know? Well, and I think, and then from the individual to the large scale, it builds who we are as hunters. And we're damn proud of who we are as hunters. And we have history of being conservation minded. We use all this science and this information to inform that. And that's what these, that's what this is all about, you know? And I think it's the personal, you know, it's easy. We hear things all the time. Well, we see things on online, you know, when we try to post something about, you know, hey, you know, we encourage you to use non-lead and here's why. And, you know, there's all kinds of, it. it's almost comedic. <laughs> so now, if people want to find out more, find the dive deep 
Yes. Where can they go? Nonleadpartnership.org. That's the over umbrella group. Um, Huntingwithnonlead.org, one of our co-founders at Institute for Wildlife Studies. Um, the Peregrine Fund, we have links there. Arizona Game and Fish, Utah Division of Natural Resources, Oregon Defer Department of Fish and Wildlife. Um, all of these partners have information. But I think the, the place to start is probably to get the feeling for what the partnership is, nonleadpartnership.org. You want to dig down into the details, IWS's website, which is Hunting with Nonlead. What if I said gung-ho, like? <laughs> you know, uh, what if I say, hell yeah, I'm all in, I'm back to copper. Yeah. I go to Cabela's, can't find a bullet. I go to Sportsman's, can't find it. It's debilitating, man. It's debilitating. And we're working on programs to try and secure ammunition for people who want it. Um, and there's programs all over in Arizona. Arizona Game and Fish has a program. If you draw a Kaibab deer tag, which good luck. <laughs> you draw. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, they'll they'll do their damnedest to get you a free box of non-lead ammo, which is pretty cool. And that's just like the due diligence of saying, man, we're we're not trying to take away your rights. We're not trying to make your hunt harder. We're trying to give you the opportunity to. Do something good for wildlife. You know, why not? Is there some core differences in the copper ammos that are out there that maybe could be help people make a decision point? Like this one does this, this one does this really well. I think that the major manufacturers today that are producing, you have... Uh, um, you have the Barnes Tip Triple Shock TTSX, you have the Hornady GMX, you have the Nosler E-Tip, you have Federal's Premiums Trophy Copper, you have all these, all the major manufacturers have a product. When we've taken them and done studies, and we've done some of these with our partners, so mm -hmm. we, we took all the sports groups in Arizona and Utah, we invited them to come out and bring their firearms, found out what ammunition, what caliber they used, and we did a, a study where they shot five rounds of unknown type of ammo, and then we put the calipers on it. So if you're going to talk about accuracy and grouping, we compared lead and non-lead. They were neck and neck, statistically not different. The non-lead in those two studies slightly out-edged as far as accuracy and grouping. Tighter groups with the non-lead. That blew me away because that wasn't the case in my experience earlier. Okay. But that's just one vein. What but it's is, very small difference. Oh, a very yeah, I mean, not statistically significant. Make a difference at yeah. 700 yards maybe. Now it's going to start making a difference. Yep. Okay. But there are new companies making fr frangible copper rounds for hunting that do expand. Some of them actually fragment at farther downrange with lower velocities. So, so do you know who those are? Can you yeah, say? there's cutting edge bullets, hammer bullets. Um, there are like three others that my guys know. They're really up on it, and I I can't speak to them. But um, hammer, cutting edge. Oh, they're gonna laugh at me. I do they actually those. have bullets in stock? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, hey, you know, I was up. So I'm up here in Montana, and I'm on a um, about a month and a half long trip, and I'm engaging. Oh, really? Um, the partnership is engaging with. Uh, we're doing one, two, three, four different states, and from coast to coast. I'm leaving here. Well, first I'm gonna go bear hunt for three days. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. So there's a lot of there's some pleasure mixed in. Oh hell yeah, man! And, uh -huh. and, and you know what? 
this isn't a job. It's a way of life. And right. part of my life is hunting and fishing. So when yeah. I can do it, even if it's on the side of the road, I'm going to go do it. So um, when I go to these places, I go check for ammo. So I'm going to get a good feel for where it is, and I'm going to hit everything I can. I stopped in here. All I found that, that was in calibers that I have was 7 mag. Um, for some uh, Barnes Vortex ammunition, 140 grain, 7 mag, and it was $69 a box. So I bit the bullet and bought a now, couple. Now what about what about another term you hear with copper, copper fouling? Yeah, copper fouling was much more of a problem in the early versions of the bullet, but um, you, you have to clean your gun no, no matter what. But the copper, the gilding metal that's used, is the same or very similar. So somebody's going to get me on this because I don't know exactly, but I've been told that there's copper jacketing about a lead bullet too, okay. just like the solid copper. So yeah. it's copper is copper. But the difference is with lead in the interior, it's more malleable. Right. And so when you have that pressure behind, it can flex and move. And so the bullet that can't do that can build up higher pressures. And then when that goes down the barrel, that's why you see the, the boat tail took some of that away because that pressure has somewhere to go. You see some manufacturers put concentric rings around it. Yeah. And I've been told that that's a part of where that pressure can go. But to my own experience, when I heard about copper fouling, I was like, all right, I want to experience it. I want to see if it's going to affect when it starts to affect. I went to Walmart and Walmart where I live, you can still buy guns where you could before they were all sold out. And I bought a Remington 700 30-06 uh, BDL, and I shot that thing in demonstrations for a year and a half. And I told them, I haven't cleaned this gun. Maybe I don't shoot well enough to see it, but I didn't see any problems with fouling in a year and a half. And that's a lot more shooting than, say, my average hunting rifle because I'm using it consistently. Right, right, right. So, yeah. But, I mean, I think you got to clean your gun. And there are solvents out there that are made specific to do that. But I heard horror stories in the early versions of these bullets. We're talking, you know, 10, 15 years ago where guys were having to buy these vats and put an electrode in there and deplate it because it was so bad. Oh, yeah. And like, obviously that's not going to work. You know, like every, almost every time you have a gun that doesn't shoot well, people will be like, oh, it's copper fouled. Right, right. You know? So we have a lot of assumptions, and I think... Uh, we, well, then you have a lot of myths, too, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. And, and the problem with a lot... And, like, okay, I, I have a company that makes tents... Backpacks, stoves. Um, I try, when there's myths or things that are blatantly inaccurate yep. online, I try to get on them as fast as possible. Yes. Sometimes they might be beneficial. Someone might be like, man, my Red Cliff makes me coffee in the morning. No, we don't want customers right. to think that the tent's going to make them coffee or right. what, whatever. Right. Silly, right? So, but... <clears throat> They develop, the myths develop a life of their own long term. And all of a sudden they become a legend, a crutch. Yeah. All these things. Hey, my gun's copper filed. I can't hit that wagon over there. Yeah. You know, and uh, it must be copper filed. Yeah. I've you heard know. the same thing about where I grew up. You know, it's like, who in the world would drive a Dodge? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and that's what I tell people that are frustrated that we we haven't solved the problem quickly enough and they say it's not happening fast enough, therefore it needs to be banned. I was like, "Man, we we are making progress because people now understand and if and if we do surveys today and we had done them 20 years ago, I can tell you there's a vast vast difference in the number of people that know about this and have chosen to take action. Um so yeah, it's a uh, it's a part of tradition and culture, and if you're going to change that, it doesn't happen overnight. 
What's up, guys? This is Ryan from Seek Outside. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. This is going to be a two-part episode. We're going to have the second part airing sometime in the next couple weeks, so make sure and stay tuned. I also wanted to let you know that we do have an email that you could write in. Um, You can give us any comments, questions, concerns that you may have. If you'd like to see any guests on the podcast, give us some recommendations. We'd love to have them. Um, The email is going to be podcast at seekoutside.com. So don't be shy there. Uh, And again, thank you guys so much for your support. And we will see you next week.